Hi, this is Lex, and welcome to the Fintech Blueprint. It's your podcast about fintech, decentralized finance, digital banking, investing, robo-advice, artificial intelligence, and all the other frontier technology that is transforming financial services. To get more content, like an illustrated transcript of this conversation in your inbox, subscribe at fintechblueprint.com. So without further delay, let's jump into today's episode. Yoni, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to um, to talk with you today. Yoni is the founder and CEO of eToro, one of the fastest growing and, and largest global digital investing companies, brokerages, applications, and we're going to explore a great number of themes about what it's like to invest and what it's like to build. So again, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Lex, for having me. Absolutely. So I have an opener for you that is very metaphysical, and you've spent a lot of time thinking about the investing space and about providing services to customers and growing a business, as well as opening up different investment opportunities for people. Let me ask you, what is the purpose of trading? What is the purpose of investing? Why do people do it? Well, obviously, people do it in order to, to generate wealth or to accumulate wealth. I would generally say you can look at two sort of themes that I think are important to note here. One is generally financial education. I think everyone should be familiar with capital markets and understand capital markets because it's a great proxy to understand businesses. So whether you want to be an entrepreneur or whether you want to invest uh, your available wealth, I think it's a very good thing to learn about capital markets and to experience capital markets. The second thing is what I think Einstein called the, the eighth wonder of the world, which is compounding growth. And that's something that a lot of people miss, which I think is really important early days. And I'm not saying it's simple to generate double digit returns, but I am saying it's possible if you learn about capital markets and you learn about the world of trading and investing to aspire to achieve double digit returns and to actually achieve them over time. And it always surprises me how hard it is for people to understand compounding of growth, which relates also to, to why we're seeing you know, significant multiples for growth companies today, et cetera. But if you invest $100,000 and for 10 years, generate 20% returns, you'll have $600,000. If you generate on average 20% returns for 30 years, your $100,000 in 30 years will be worth $23 million. In 30 years, if you generate 25% returns, your $100,000 will be worth $80 million. So I think it's really about the reason to look at the markets is to try and do more with your money now, the other part of that is a very wide discussion right now over the internet, probably the biggest discussion in human history about the value of money, which then relates obviously to both crypto and capital markets, which is inflation or the value of money. So most people still hold cash, whether it's dollars or euros or in Israel, shekels. And historically, the purchasing power of fiat currency devalues throughout time significantly. And whether it's you know 2% inflation or 4% of inflation or how you calculate inflation, 
I think more and more people understand today that if they generate any available cash, any available income, they should invest it, whether it's in capital markets or in crypto markets and how to invest it. That's a, a very long discussion. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the fact that people have these tools available to them, the tools of investing and experiencing capital gains, the tools of having their assets work for them, that's something pretty distinctive and special and has been becoming easier and more accessible over the last 10, 15 years. And of course, fintech and the you know the companies whether they're robo advisors or near banks or digital brokerages like eToro have been really opening up these opportunities i want to kind of step back to even that that very basic moment for a person who the average consumer or retail investor to the moment where they're right about to open their first trading account or their first investing account. And the behavioral attributes of people are really something to focus on, right? Where lots of Americans, for example, have very little savings, are really thinking about money as budgeting and sometimes are in some sort of debt trap. And they don't, they don't know that these tools are available to them. How would you tell a person like that the opportunities that, you know, capital markets are, are putting money to work gives them, you know, what, what is the insight that you've had over the years about how to bring that person across? I think it's really about, so I truly believe that people should invest in companies that they love and understand. And that has been a very strong theme in capital markets in general. So I think about five or six years ago, I presented on stage, how would it look like if every two years you're replacing your iPhone? What would happen if from the first iPhone, every time you replace an iPhone, you also invested the cost of an iPhone in Apple stock? And obviously that would have generated significant returns. Now it's easy because we all know Apple was very successful. And that's the beauty of what's happening today in the fintech space we're lowering the barriers to entry significantly, whether it's commission-free stock trading and fractional shares, uh, whether it's features uh, for eToro globally, uh, like copy trading. And I think it enables people to experience investing early on, even with small amounts of money. And that enables them to get emotionally attached to the markets and gradually learn how markets work and where they want to invest. And because a lot of the growth companies that we see are also consumer companies, so whether you think about Amazon and Netflix and Facebook and Apple, but even when you think about interesting value stocks like Coca-Cola or Disney or McDonald's, I think a lot of people can easily relate to companies that they love and understand and use their products. And obviously, they need to also learn about, you know, valuations, about the markets. But it's a very big difference between investing $50 to investing something that's significantly bigger as part of your annual income or available assets. So I want to meditate on this idea of money and financial health, because I think it really opens up the reasons for engaging with trading and investing. And I think a lot of people think of money as pain where you know money is their spending it's their salary it's their mortgage it's the unit of account for the difficulty of their life it's homework 
And I think what's what's really important to, to realize is that it is just a technology for abstracting value. It's a technology for keeping track of what you or other people find valuable. And then it has its own tools and its own products to grow, to be taken care of, and so on. And so just in the way that you know, for your body, you would buy food and then you'd work out and you would sleep in order to have good physical health. When you look at your financial capital, the same ideas apply where you need to have financial health. And so, you know, participating in these markets and making investment decisions and planning are really important parts for people to be able to, to get to a financial situation that makes their lives better. How do you and how does eToro think about financial health and and getting people to achieve it? I would start with financial education. In my view, financial education and more specifically, knowledge of capital markets, of valuations, of, you know, how to read financial reports, I think, of diversification, which is sort of a, a basic element of any risk management and money management point of view. I think those elements are in the basics and the core of financial health. I think that our view in eToro is that because we've built what is today the largest social investment network, so we have 20 million registered users within a social network who talk about the markets, who show people what they're trading in their portfolios and can create a conversation about what's happening in the markets. I think that for me, is the basis of what Tutoro brings to the table. A healthy, trusted discussion about capital markets. I also very much believe in practicing your knowledge. So I, I think, again, any person who can spend $50 on consuming something, uh, whether it's going out to you know the cinema or whether it's buying a good meal, can also invest those $50 in the markets. And I think people have been accustomed to sort of very much enjoying consumption, right? So you love spending money. I love investing money the same way most people love spending money. And generally, if you like investing money, if every time you thought, do I need a new iPhone? You ask yourself, what do I really prefer to do? Invest $500 in Apple shares or buy the iPhone? If even one out of three of those decisions you'd invest in Apple, you'd be in a better financial health. And that's the reason why passion and knowledge about capital markets eventually transforms you into a healthier financial person. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's almost like discovering you have this you know other limb that can do things with your assets. It's not just consumption, but it's also planning for the future. And and I know that, you know, if you look at the statistics across the population, the hardest things is just to move somebody from cash into being invested and participating. And even though that can be terrifying for first time adopters, it's still everyone makes mistakes, but it's still the most impactful thing just to kind of move them in. I want to precede two questions. I'd love to talk about the social aspect because I think it's really important. But before getting into that, just some definitional starting points around, you mentioned diversification, and we've used the word asset classes. So let's talk about what kinds of asset classes eToro offers and how you think those should come together. Or you know, if you're a user, how do those come together for you into a portfolio strategy? 
So, so globally, eToro today provides access to both commission-free stock trading for users in 100 different countries across multiple equity markets. So not only US stocks, but European stocks uh, and some Asian stocks as well. We offer cryptocurrency trading in 26 different cryptocurrencies. Uh, and outside the US, we also enable people to trade commodities and currencies. In addition to that, and we consider that another asset class, we enable people to actually see other people's portfolios and then automatically copy the most successful investors in the network. So you can see hundreds of thousands of active portfolios. You can sort them. You can see our popular investors were the most successful investors in the network. And with a click of a button, choose an amount of $1,000 and copy an entire portfolio with the same proportion to your $1,000. And every time that trader trades in his account, it automatically does that trade at the same time and the same price and the same proportion in your account. So you basically copy his performance over time. And in addition to that, our chief investment office are creating thematic portfolios to enable investors to diversify. So just as an example, we've noticed last year we had a surge in the number of people who came to eToro just to open an account and buy a fraction of a share of Tesla. And what we found out is a lot of these users eventually went into other renewable energy stocks or other electric vehicle stocks. So we created these basket of stocks. So with a click of a button, you can actually invest in a basket of stocks around a theme like renewable energy, electric vehicles, cannabis care, food tech, etc. So people can actually diversify across a theme that they're already interested in. That's super interesting, and I want to open up a little bit the profile of the investor that does this. So I think from a macro point of view, they're folks who are very delegator personality like, so they they want to be taken care of, and you know they might have a financial advisor, and for them, baskets and pie charts and asset allocations and sort of a passive approach is the answer, and then. There are others who are far more active and, and have a view on the markets and like developing the view on the markets and, and doing the selection and naming individual securities that, that they're interested in. And then, of course, there's lots of different types of people in the middle who, who want to have some participation and some control, but maybe not all of the control or partial control. You know, these models around, around following a top trader or selecting a theme can be really compelling. Let me ask you kind of an entrepreneurial question about this because I've been watching the fintech industry for a while and it's not easy to succeed in this middle segment. And we know a couple of companies, whether it's you know Covester or Kaching or Motif, that have tried to go after these functionalities. You know, and you get problems like, for example, in your list of traders that that are getting good performance, how do you separate the signal, meaning the good stuff, from the noise? You know, so for example, let's say somebody has a very high sharp ratio, very good performance for two months, and then lots of people copy their trades and their performance tanks. And so you, you kind of create a difficult experience for people. So I'm sure you've spent a ton of time figuring out how to solve this problem, the selection problem for copy trading. And I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts about how do you feature or figure out which performance is sticky and likely to persist over the long term versus which you know traders maybe got lucky or 
are riding a momentum wave? Like what's the engine underneath? Sure. So I'll, I'll generally say like a lot of things around sort of entrepreneurship is practice makes perfect. So we, we changed a lot, even sort of our, our belief systems. Originally, we thought, let's try to build this as sort of a completely open network where we don't curate anything and people can make their own decisions to find whomever they want. And I thought originally we need to make it as flat as possible. We then found out something quite interesting that people had the tendency of automatically sorting by gains and choosing the ones who just generated the most amount of gains. And that was a destructive decision for users. Gradually, we've built a system which is quite complex. So one, I'd say it's the law of large numbers. At the end of March this year, we had 1.5 million funded accounts. Out of these, only about 1,600 are who we call popular investors. We're a part of the program where they can actually get paid for being copied. So one out of a thousand funded accounts right now in eToro is what we would consider a qualified popular investor and somebody who we believe will consistently generate returns over time. And the way we build it is one, we are using a lot of machine learning to identify. And that's the cool thing about machine learning. I have to say that when, when we started using these tools, I was a bit skeptic because it doesn't sound right. When you think of, of these tools, it's always surprising. And I'm, and I'm a computer scientist, but you can actually give a list of a million and a half accounts and generate a model, which basically says, who are the people with the highest probability of generating at least 2% returns over the next quarter. And you can actually build those tools to try and define what are the parameters. Sometimes we don't necessarily know the parameters because you were just purely using the machine learning to try and identify them. And sometimes uh, we're using it to actually identifying the parameters of how to feature people and how to sort people on the platform from a, a UX perspective. The second part is we've built our, our chief investment office to actually work together with the popular investors. So when people get copied on eToro today, they automatically get an email saying, hey, someone found you interesting enough to copy you. But if you want a lot of people to copy you and to eventually earn from other people copying you, you have to enroll to the popular investor program. And then we created a tiered program where we also provide educational materials. So we actually help users who enroll into the popular investor program. We finance their education around investment management, risk management uh, with various courses. And in order for them to unlock the next step, the next milestone, so to actually advance in the popular investor program and being able to get more copiers, you have to basically achieve a certain level of whether it's courses or risk of your portfolio. Uh, we always make sure that there's a similar prominence to risk and to returns. And we limit basically the risk that people can actually take in their portfolios. And that's being curated by actually an investment team who work with the popular investors, learn about their strategies, look at their trading activity over time. So it's a combination of the law of large numbers, so we can actually find one out of a thousand who are successful, of machine learning to try and, and identify who are those who are successful, and a team of investment professionals who actually work with these people to both help them 
get more educated and manage the risks and investments over time. I think that's fantastically interesting because what you're describing is you're professionalizing the people who have talent. And let's assume talent, maybe, you know, some combination of intuition and capability, but also training and, and sort of engagement and, and hard work. But you are you're identifying the talent and then you're professionalizing the talent so the investment product they generate doesn't blow up, which is what tends to happen when you've got just sort of unfiltered retail accounts is that people might make one fantastic investment decision. And like you say, what the crowd does is just sort by largest gain because people don't understand that you don't get gains for free. Every single unit of return comes at a price and that price is risk. And you know most people don't have an intuition that you pay in risk for that return. And so when you professionalize the talent pool, the investors you've, you've selected, that improves the investment product that's available to the rest. So there is an interesting dynamic of both manufacturing and distribution in the sense that you've got this large distribution footprint of people being able to access the investments. And then you're also able to create a manufacturing arm almost out of the best ones and have the firm add certain frameworks and guardrails around them to make that investment product better. And I think this is really interesting because it's quite difficult to do. And historically, the tools weren't there to do it, either in having the scale to select for the right talent, nor the machinery to select for it nor really the availability of education that you've got today. I guess one other thing is the the comment around machine learning immediately makes me think of, you know, TikTok. And for lots of people machine learning is just like matrix numbers on a screen, you know, it's kind of complicated. But, you know, we have lots and lots of services that use algorithms to customize, personalize and select for us the thing that makes us happy. And I think certainly finance is no different. It's it's not special. It's not unique or separate. And so we're we're seeing kind of mass customization and the power of you know neural networks and computation come and do that for us here. So that that was a really interesting thematic. Let me switch us into an adjacent topic, which is kind of momentum and social media and community. And especially over the last year, year and a half there's been just a huge interest of what you've described as people investing in what they understand. And you know, with GameStop and Silver and crypto, a lot of investing is driven by community and what people say and think, and in some sense to counter the institutional investor and what's seen as a more stodgy, traditional, perhaps outdated, although I'd debate that, but a different approach, a more sort of incumbent approach. What's your view on these trends? I wouldn't necessarily, by the way, call it incumbent. I would call it value investing. So the, the way I view it, I usually, and again, there's many ways to segment types of investing. And because I've been a fan of capital markets since I was about 13, I would generally segment value investing as looking at the core existing value, being able to analyze and understand DCF cash flows and try as much as possible to get rid of what Benjamin Graham calls Mr. Market, the irrationality of markets, right? And I really got to understand and learn more about value investing because it hit my head like a hundred ton hammer when I had dinner with Warren Buffett. That's the really basics of investing. 
that it's amazing how many people don't understand. So when I asked Buffett about investing, he just referred me to Benjamin Graham's Intelligent Investor book. So I went and printed uh, copies for all of eToro employees to read that book. Then you have growth investing, where it's either technology growth, and it's about what we talked before, which is how much do you believe in the future growth of a company? Peter Thiel talks about it a lot in Zero to One. You have a lot of investors who are very minded towards growth. Obviously, you can think about sort of very disruptive large companies like Amazon and Tesla, but you can also think about luxury goods. LVMH, worth $350 billion, is a growth company of manufacturing luxury goods. But if you look at a business and you can estimate that that industry and that mode of the business grows 25% a year for the next 10, 20, 30 years, you have a, potentially a very large valuation that it's hard to explain purely from existing or, or historical value. And then the third is, and you can call it in, in different names, but it is really around either scarcity or really understanding the irrationality or Mr. Market. So if Benjamin Graham and the likes of value investors would say, try to completely disregard him because you can't understand irrationality, I think what we're seeing now, and it relates to crypto, it relates to, to a lot of different themes that we're seeing in the markets, is that if a group of people, if a large enough community says, I'm buying this, then a market simply works on demand and supply, right? So if there's scarcity and there's enough people with enough money who want to buy something, it'll actually go up. And, you know, hedge funds have known it forever. It's a part of how Wall Street and every sort of financial services ecosystem locally work, which are, are very usually sort of small in the amount of participants in it. And that concept has just grown to capture retail interest and retail demand. And that has caused, alongside, again, inflation, zero interest rates, stimulus checks, right? So a very interesting confluence of circumstances, just a lot of very interesting phenomena, which you can think about crypto as a symbol of them. But then what happened in crypto actually went and sort of into capital markets and, and into the stock markets, right? So what is the intrinsic value of Bitcoin? It is how many people buy Bitcoin, hodl Bitcoin, how many people actually use Bitcoin, the velocity of the network, and what's the dry powder of more people who you know can actually afford to buy more Bitcoin. That's the driver of valuation if you think of, of token economics, right? So there's no intrinsic value. There's no real DCF. Token economics actually come from money markets, from how do you value a currency or money in general. And I'm sure you're familiar with some of those models, but that's super interesting because what that basically means is what you need is to look at the community and try to understand how strong is this community? How truly do they believe in this asset and are they going to hold it over time? And if, if that's the case, there are interesting opportunities there. So I, I, and, I and I think it's just that, that level of discussion and how widespread that discussion is is fascinating. And I think it's also very, to some extent, I would say even romantic because it brought retail investors flocking into the markets 
and eventually saving companies. So if you think about two of the big symbols of this, which is GameStop and AMC, in both cases, retail investors flocked, bought stock. I think there are 4 million retail investors who own now AMC, but the managements of those companies actually managed to transform the fact that people believe in their company and trying to save the company to actually raise capital in capital markets and now start a digital transformation or, or a transformation post-COVID, right? Those are two specific companies hit very hard by the COVID-19 pandemic, obviously with stores and cinemas. That means that the risk became much, much higher. So institutions and pure financial players sort of either went out or went short and retail investors sort of came in to save them and actually so far managed to do it. And I think that is really the purpose of capital markets. The purpose of capital markets is to enable management teams or entrepreneurs to be able to raise capital in order to finance, you know, I can call it their dreams or their business or their vision. And I think that's what we've seen in, in a lot of these cases. That does not mean that it doesn't have a lot of risk into it. So unfortunately, when things go up five times and 10 times, a lot of people think that it's either easy or they think it'll continue forever. So you, you look at a, at a stock or a crypto and you say it went from $5,000 to $50,000. So let's tell everybody you can make here an easy 10X and it can actually go to $500,000. And that's usually not the case. So historical returns rarely are good predictions of future returns. Uh, that, that is really about analysis. So the danger here is people looking at this and thinking there's a way to make easy money, which there isn't. But the story of retail investors becoming a stronger, more influential voice in the markets globally, I think that that's a great message. And I think we're seeing the, an inflection point of something much bigger over the next 10 years. There's so much good stuff in there to unpack, but I've got to ask first about Warren. Do you remember what he had for for dinner? What what does he like to eat? Oh, I'm almost certain he had steak, but actually I think the meal bill itself is on Twitter somewhere. <laughs> so this was the, the charity dinner uh, that I was invited by Justin Sun, the founder of Tron. And if I remember correctly, they posted it on Twitter, so you can probably find it there. He definitely drank Coke. Fantastic. That's That sounds amazing. After staring at market structure and human nature, which I try to do a lot, one thing that becomes clear is that, yes, some frameworks feel more tangible and mathematical and quantitative and quote unquote real, and they've got a lot more evidence of some kind behind them. And then other frameworks might feel more playful or qualitative or, you know, social, relational, kind of animalistic. But at the core, they are all frameworks. They're all to some extent, you know, human inventions, human ideas and thoughts that are rules of thumb to characterize how the world works. And so if you are a value investor, you've got your discounted cash flows and you understand a certain connection between how a company generates revenue and how that accrues to shareholders and what it means to own a piece of equity and how that piece of equity trades in the markets and therefore based on the multiple, what's the company worth and so on and so forth. And that is 
one idea that you bring to the market. And that idea is powerful when everybody around you also brings that same framework to the market. And so you're all looking at the goods on, on, on offer with the same framework. And then you've got another group of people who bring a different idea into the market and structure their, you can say, analysis or, or approach in a very different way, but they cohere into social consensus as well. And for me, it's really kind of been enlightening to see everything as as the social reflection, as this like social layer that people bring to a market, rather to have black and white conceptions of, you know, this is the truth and it's only this way, and this is a game and it's only this way. And I think we're seeing that develop, especially as the assets that people invest change shape. So the corporate form, the investing into the share of a company and that company throwing off cash flows that, you know, somehow are captured into that share, that corporate form is changing as well. And as crypto assets and currencies and tokens become very mainstream, there are real questions that that can be asked between the connection of a thing, a brand, GameStop, and then the thing that people own. And I think the, the dynamic you described about Bitcoin is very interesting. And I think the most magical thing about Bitcoin is that you it's a digital asset you can actually buy. Like the, the innovation is the fact that you can hold a Bitcoin and that before Bitcoin, there were no digital assets that were validated and transacted in the same way. And so we're, we're- That is the aha moment that sometimes people miss. So I used to give Bitcoins away back in 2012, 13, I would just, Tell somebody, open, open a wallet, I'll give you, I actually gave a whole Bitcoins and I need to track those people down. <laughs> but, but, but I think that's the aha moment. The aha moment I had with Bitcoin is when I actually mined and sort of held it in my computer and moved it from one place to another. And it's, it's you actually hold the digital asset. You, you're holding yourself a financial digital asset that works. 24-7, that you can send and receive it 24-7. That, that's what I call digital native asset. I think most people in finance don't understand how basic that is and how revolutionary that is and how that's going to impact. And in my view, next, I don't know if it's 10 years or 20 years, I think we're going to see most financial assets in the world, hundreds of trillions of dollars move to a digital form which means people can actually hold that representation and move that representation 24-7 between a lot of multiple participants. So if you look at the crypto assets that eToro offers today, do you see any trends about what people like to invest in or sort of the logic that they bring to crypto trading or anything that reflects on the crypto industry? Yes, but I'll start by saying, personally, I think Bitcoin is king and Ethereum is queen. So Bitcoin, in my view, so I'm sharing first my view so people don't throw tomatoes at me when they hear this podcast. So first, you know, with Bitcoin, I love to call it the 42 Bitcoin club, which sounds very big because you need to be rich to hold 42 Bitcoins. But there can only be half a million people in the world who will ever own 42 Bitcoins. And there are today 55 millionaires in the world. And the more I go to conferences and meet more crypto enthusiasts and more people who are stacking stats, you sort of realize we're going to get to that half a million people who are very passionate about Bitcoin 
and want to hold it and want to stack stats to, to achieve as much as possible their 42 Bitcoins, which means there's a real scarcity effect to the fact that there are only going to be 21 billion Bitcoins and it's by definition, therefore, a deflationary asset. So we're just talking about whether there are going to be some catastrophical event, which I doubt, because I think the community and social elements will correct it, or whether for some reason something could actually overthrow Bitcoin, which I doubt, because Bitcoin is the synonym to cryptocurrency, to decentralization, and by far, in my view, the most decentralized one. Ethereum, I think, represents something else, which is smart contracts, which is, again, a huge amount of innovation. I think what we're seeing today in, in the DeFi world represents what we're going to see 10 and 20 years from today in the financial services industry. I think every single piece of sort of innovation, whether it's things like flash loans, whether it's, uh, you know, decentralized stable coins Ac across the board. When you look at the innovation, how, whether it's DAOs, how, whether it's IDOs, when you look at the level of innovative decentralized KYC, and I can go on and on, and you can probably go on and on, on more than me. If you look at all of the, those innovations, I think it's going to take a long time for them to embed themselves within financial services, but eventually it's going to replace the entire financial services industry stack with digital assets, tokenized assets, and smart contracts. And the level of innovation and speed we can achieve by moving from accountants and lawyers to code, I think that's a, that's a step function for humanity that I'm excited I'll be able to witness it over the next 10 and 20 years. And around smart contracts, there is still a question. So I, I, I think Ethereum right now is a very clear leader, but I think a lot of the crypto assets we see on eToro rising up are around that theme, whether it's because they're shouting very loud or in a specific region, whether they claim to have some level of uh, technological upside to Ethereum. You know, we, we saw a significant rise in the interest in Cardano, for example, uh, which also offered staking and also a better type of staking because ETH 2.0 still needs to be locked up. Cardano doesn't need to be locked up. So I think staking is an integral part of smart contracts because you're actually incentivizing the community. So staking is here to stay. We saw it with Cardano and, and several others. And we've seen a lot of people coming to eToro to buy an asset and to stake it. So people are also interested in, in that form of, for lack of a better word, sort of fixed income, right? Or something that is substitute for interest rate. And I think the, the third is obviously what we've seen is the sort of, let's call them the meme coins, right? So I, I was hugely surprised and learned my lesson as well by Dogecoin. The level of an engagement and participation of, of the community there uh, was just mind-blowing. More than we've seen across time, I would say that in the past, we've seen in 2017-18, around XRP, what we've seen in 2021, around Dogecoin. And obviously there's sort of a very interesting element. So if we talked before about the value of a cryptocurrency is the community and also the dry powder of the community, right? So how much can this community keep on putting fiat money to keep on buying that coin because they want to in Bitcoin stack stats, right? So you got all the laser eyes stacking stats. In 
Dogecoin, you have suddenly, you know, somebody worth $200 billion, apparently a part of that community, and that changes the amount of potential dry powder or even perceived dry powder that entire community has. So I think that that's something interesting, and I wonder if we'll see something at these levels happening with other coins as well. Yeah, and I, I want to connect this to some of the earlier things we said about the purpose of capital markets and GameStop and the connection between capital and memes and fashion. Now, and there's nothing wrong with fashion. It's in human nature to want to stand out, to want to signal status, to make things popular and unpopular and popular again. This is sort of the blending between financial services and the media industries, which is which is happening in both directions. But with money, you have this interesting dynamic where if you are buying up GameStop stock and all of a sudden it's worth 10 times as much or 20 times as much, and the management of that company can now issue more stock and raise $100 million and go on an acquisition spree for revenue generating businesses, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy like the the commitment by investors into a particular company gives that company tools and capital to deploy to represent the brand that those investors are thinking about and in crypto assets this is almost taken to its logical conclusion which is that when you are buying a token of some protocol and the protocol becomes more valuable, the developers or projects that, that are funded by that token, as a result, have more capital, which they can spend on development and progress of the protocol. And there's this kind of recursive nature to it. But that recursive nature is exactly the same as in the 1600s or the 1700s, somebody landing in a new continent and starting with a town and then over a century growing into a country of 300 million people. It's how human societies grow and expand and follow their belief systems. So I think we really are at the stage of a, a really digital financial services that's much more connected to communities. Okay, we've we've covered a lot of stuff. Uh, I'll, I'll add to that two things. One is a hundred percent. I agree. You know, financial statements and how you look at financial statements, uh, which represent equity ownership in a company, which is registered in a country, which then is listed on an exchange where you have an ecosystem of financial institutions buying and selling it with analysts reviewing it is is one ecosystem, and we now see another ecosystem, which is token economics, crypto economics, a much more global one, different one, with a lot of benefits to it and a lot of uh, problems to it, like potential moral hazard, lack of regulation, et cetera, et cetera. But there could be alternatives to existing capital markets, which are different, and token economics basically rep represents something different. And we've seen very interesting sort of how this advanced from ICO which was completely without governance, to IEO, which was an exchange governance, to IDO, which is smart contract governance. So, so I think we do see significant progress there, and I think there's a lot of opportunity of eventually capital formation, right? So part of it is about capital formation, about enabling generally people to try and execute their vision. It's not necessarily a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's enabling a group of people to execute their vision and to finance that vision in alternative ways. I think the other part is really money. 
right? So what is money? And a very large discussion on the value of money and what is money. I think that's sort of the, the core of Bitcoin. And I think, again, money is today fiat currency is a local government fiat currency. There is a question whether, you know, that paradigm will shift or change significantly or not. In my view, Bitcoin is probably going to survive together with a lot of fiat currencies, especially of the large countries. I don't think any large developed country is going to sort of waive their right to issue their own currency and have their own uh, monetary and fiscal policy. But I think in general, if a group of people believes in the value of something, and I think we're seeing this in NFTs, it's a great example, then people can actually collaborate and create sort of a sharing economy where everybody can participate in the wealth and distribute the wealth in just a different way than how it's distributed right now. So the same with companies and capital formation, there's society in how we treat money, right? So right now money, you earn money, you spend money, you save money, you pay taxes in money, right? And you don't want to just give your money away to anyone without knowledge. There's interest rate, there's banking, but, but that's the entirety of how society treats money can also change. And that's a very big paradigm shift of, I think, even a, a longer horizon. Absolutely. That's a fantastic place for us to wrap up. Really appreciate this conversation across a number of developing topics. And this, this is going to sound like a silly question, but if our listeners want to find out more about eToro or to follow you, where should they go? eToro.com or download our mobile app or uh, uh, happy to start a discussion on Twitter at uh, Yoni Asia. Awesome. Yoni, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Lex. Hi, everyone. That's it for this week's episode of the Fintech Blueprint. For more technical deep dives into all things fintech and decentralized finance, check out fintechblueprint.com and grab a free subscription to the newsletter. This is Lex, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>